Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. My guest today is Martin Claggett. He's the author of A Spark of Revolution, William Small, Thomas Jefferson, and James Watt, The Curious Connection Between the American Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. It's a biography, the first biography in 250 years, ever, of... William Small, uh, who is known to most people as the tutor of Thomas Jefferson, but as Claggett exhaustively demonstrates, was rather more than that. So, Martin, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. So, when you're talking to a bored lady at a cocktail party, and you want to explain why you've spent so much labor in the archives on both sides of the Atlantic, why Williams, who William Small was, and why... He was important. What do you tell her? Uh, William Small was both an unexpected and a surprisingly significant figure in the 18th century. He came from a country background and during his life uh, was uh, a Thomas Jefferson's only professor at William and Mary. All the others had been booted out and the whole cadre of students who, from William and Mary who led the American Revolution. When he left uh, Virginia on Ben Franklin's advice and went back to England, Franklin arranged for a job with the first modern industrialist, a fellow named Matthew Bolton, who invented the factory system uh, 10 years before the Wealth of Nations was published, and in the process of uh, helping Bolton, both with his factory and with an intellectual group, or a scientific group, really, uh, the Birmingham Lunar Society, an unknown Scotsman stopped by to see this wonderful factory by the name of James Watt. Small became so... uh, enhanced and tranced with uh, Watt's description of his new steam engine that he nagged Bolton until he finally uh, bought uh, two-thirds of Watt's patent for that steam engine. And Small both helped Watt develop the steam engine and he helped lobby for its passage in Parliament And two days after it was entered, 
small died at the age of 41. <laughs> so that is an extraordinary pricey. Uh, it, he already sounds like some sort of 18th century, what's the Woody Allen film, Zelig, who's like in all the various uh, pictures and all the great pictures. He's, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. And he is, at, as you said, at the genesis of certainly Virginia's revolution and at the genesis of the industrial, I mean, right at the ground zero of the industrial revolution. And all the time carrying along with him the tenets of uh, the school, Scottish School of Common Sense and the scientific method of gathering information, organizing it, uh, testing it, doing a null hypothesis, and coming up with a rational conclusion. So let's begin where, let's go back to your beginning. Let's talk about, I want to talk about in the first section here, we're talking about the places he was. Because really, he has a very rich life for someone who dies at 41. And he's actually, compared to everybody else in the world, I suppose, he goes to lots of different places. But they're very discreet chunk periods of his life, like beads on a string. So he is, the first significant thing is, he's the son of a Scottish clergyman, maybe a rural clergyman, but that means he's he grows up in the most literate and educated society in the world, perhaps. Yes, it was um, very uh, surprising that the Scots, after John Knox had introduced a system of sort of universal education, uh, became the most knowledgeable, the most uh, well-versed, group of people in Europe, while at the same time being a group that was economically um, depressed, which led a lot of the Scots to emigrate to America, and many of them to become tutors in American families and American universities. So that helped spread that philosophy of common sense that was prevalent in Scotland at that time. So what is, what is I mean, this is, a, this is an impossible task. If you had to give yourself the 100 words or less definition of Scottish common sense philosophy, which you've mentioned twice or th- two or three times now, what is Scott, co- Scottish common sense philosophy? The philosophy, I guess, to compare it to the other prevalent philosophy at the time uh, was abstract, or sometimes it's called ideal philosophy. It was Descartes and Hume, who uh, thought that everything that was real was in your mind, that uh, what you believed is what was truth. Uh, That helped uh, Small's mentor, John Gregory, and his cousin Thomas Reed to found the Aberdeen Philosophical Society, which countered with our basis of knowledge is based on our five primary senses plus a sense of uh, morals and an aesthetic sense. So those were the seven primary senses. The, the, the senses that we know, uh, seeing, hearing, smell, touch. And taste. Taste. Plus moral and aesthetic sense. Those are also, that's they, they stipulate that. Those are part of their presuppositions for this system. Yeah, so an aesthetic sense, I think, Reed described it as um, 
telling beauty. And this is not only what you see, but very often in uh, polite literature, that's where Belalek came from, and, uh, and he described it as even a owner of a dog that's ugly knows that the dog is ugly. But it went far more than that, and uh, it was um, that you used your major senses first to ferret out the truth, and then you added on to that if you needed to from that point. So this is self-evident truth. Mm -hmm. And it's not surprising to see it in the Declaration of uh, Independence. Mm -hmm. So self-evidence is described by Reed. If you take your hand and stick it in a bank of snow, you know it's cold and you don't need any further proof than that. Mm -hmm. So uh, Scottish common sense was a way of a rational, concrete, demonstrable way of showing and finding the truth rather than some uh, nebulous and abstract, oh, that's what I think, so that's what it must be. Mm -hmm. And that's very, I think, strikingly um, useful in looking at the present political situation in our own country. It's strikingly useful in thinking about how sort of Americans in the 19th century thought about things. Yes. Yeah, you can you can see if this is if if this description is true, I think it is. It's very nice. Then you can see that it explains quite a lot about American political inclinations. You can see Lincoln as a Scottish common sense, a legatee of Scottish common sense philosophy. We could you know we could go on with this a million ways. Now, as the son of a manse, where this with a father who already has subscribed to probably most of the tenets of Scottish common sense philosophy. Um, Small, William Small is probably already imbibing this, literally, as he learns to read and look around at the world around him. But what is sort of his early education? Where, where, does, he, where does he go to learn this and, and to drink of this deeply? Uh, there are four universities in Scotland. He goes to the one that is, we're now least familiar with. In two in England. Mm -hmm. um, started at, at Paris School at Carmilly and got his ABCs there. And then there was a very um, forward-looking Dundee Grammar School in which students went there seven years rather than the regular five. When he uh, and his brother, his brother was Robert Small, they both went there at the same time, uh, graduated. All the Smalls before had gone to St. Andrews but he went to Marshall, and that was probably more to a bursary or an endowment. You mentioned earlier this Aberdeen, the Aberdeen Society. Could you describe the that that the creation of that and, and what and the influence on at least what's the immediate influence on Small as best as we can tell? Yeah, the Aberdeen Philosophical Society was also called the Wise Club, and it was uh, professors from. Um, Marshall College and King's College, which was which are about two miles uh, apart from one another, 
Kings being in the old city and Marshall was in the new city. And it was very reflective of their characters. King's College had uh, old Scottish families, Highland Scottish families, Marshall College had um, really nouveau riche merchants because after 1707, the merchants in Scotland started making a ton of money. They wanted the kids educated. Um, but what they wanted was practical education, Franklin education, where you learned science and math and the natural philosophies so that um, you could conduct business more efficiently. And uh, King's College was primarily law, medicine, and religion. So the professors from the two colleges started meeting, largely in reaction to uh, Hume's uh, essays and the implied um, non-importance of God or perhaps even non-existence of God in some of his uh, works. And uh, they started to debate things have on particular subjects, particularly when it would be a subject that would confront Hume or Descartes or some of these abstractionists. So that's how it started. And of course, a lot of what they discussed was in an oblique way of um, talking science, talking uh, origins of things. So in a Marshall College type of way, so a, a very natural philosophy um, oriented. That type, that model, in the cohesiveness of that unit, in the really the incredible um, significance of the common sense philosophy that spread very quickly. Um, had not only a tremendous impact on small, but that whole cadre of revolutionary students that he was teaching at William and Mary, and not just Jefferson, um, and the societies that were born out of that that small had contact with or origin in the Parte Quare, although that was more of a Francis Falk here. Uh, led idea, uh, but the inclusion that Small would bring to it of his students was something quite new. Uh, the Birmingham Lunar Society was a very uh, historian of that society, Eric Robinson said, unconscious. So when we get to that, I'll, I'll describe that. that yeah. So this sets up a, a template of classic enlightenment learning, uh, in which we're going to talk about this, we'll conclude talking about friendship, in which friendship and learning, advanced learning, can be combined, even though people aren't getting credits for it, that doesn't mean that they aren't engaging in thinking and in learning um, yes. and, and serious discussion, which tends towards a certain direction or rejects other directions and so on. Well, the part of it that I was beginning to mention, we'll mention further when we get to William and Mary, was that this tutoring was not only small, 
but it was with, and it was sometimes um, Peyton Randolph uh, outside of the governor's mansion, the party Quarray. Uh, Jefferson was first invited, small got him invited. It was just uh, small and with and Falkir got him invited to play play the fiddle. But the more uh, he was engaged in the conversation, the more they wanted him back. Mm -hmm. But of course, Jefferson was not the only one of small students. Only in his memory. <laughs> not even in his memory, to be fair. But it, Jefferson biographers sometimes act as if he was the only person. Yes. But there was John Page, one of my favorites, and and many others besides. And and then people who weren't even there, like St. George Tucker, who we'll talk about, who was very influenced by the legacy as, as it was adumbrated to him by George Wythe. And, and so on. And, the, and this was part of what was going on from maybe 1759 or 1760 that they were having extra mural <coughs> lectures, symposium, and particularly Whip was holding mock trials, mm -hmm. which was uh, mm -hmm. very much the template he had when he became professor of and law. The, and mock legislative sessions, too. And mock legislative sessions, yes. It was interesting to see how early he started doing that. Long before, I mean, I've always associated that with post-revolutionary Williamsburg, but it's long before that. And I think it's probably because Wythe was anticipating a break with Britain, and he wanted to have in place. Yeah, you're going too far for me there. Oh, maybe, okay. maybe, maybe just maybe he just wanted better British American legislators. But either way, it worked out. It worked out in, in either direction, no matter what the intention was. Um, no. Let's talk about Small's uh, education because when he's at William Mary, he's very careful to call himself Professor of Mathematics, even though does he not? Even though that's not actually a, a, a position. No, that's the title. He that's, was hired. Oh, he was hired. But he also practices as a, as a doctor. He does. So where does this mathematical and medical knowledge come from? And Because he operates at a rather high level in, in both regards. So in Aberdeen, John Gregory, and he may have roomed at Gregory's house, uh, Gregory and his brother James Gregory had a medical practice there, and Small was an apprentice with him there. And... 55, and that's when Small graduated, Gregory moved to London to uh, be a doctor at St. George's Hospital. And uh, his wife was Elizabeth Forbes, and she was the niece of um, Elizabeth Montague of Blue Stocking Club fame. Wow! Everyone and, knows everybody else. It's just—it's just crazy. The, the, the links that you must have followed must have kind of started to drive you a little crazy. I mean, oh it, no, it, it's just so much fun. It's fun, know? but after, after a while, you begin to become like a conspiracy theorist. You know, you start to see all the threads are connecting to everything else. You have a a, a bulletin board full of pick of like you know index cards and and pieces of yarn connecting them or something like that. I'm relatively sure that's how small about his job at Wayman. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, Small followed uh, Gregory to London, worked, uh, walked the wards mm -hmm. at uh, St. George's Hospital. Uh, Sir John Pringle had him mentioned in his notes as attending a um, uh, surgery performed by uh, Hunter, John Hunter. 
And um, so he had pretty accomplished training in London for three years before he was um, recruited by uh, Samuel Nichols, the um, right-hand man of the Archbishop or the Bishop of London, who was the uh, person in charge of supplying professors to William and Mary. But one before one last thing, where does the math come from? Where where does cause he's he actually has an intellectual interest in mathematics. Oh yeah. See, I mean he wants to play around with math in it, a way that mathematicians do, in the way that historians do not. So where does that where does that come from in his in his life? In his second year at Marshall College he had a fellow named Francis Skeen and under whom he studied medium advanced mathematics. Uh, William Dunker was a higher level of mathematics and by the time he got to Alex uh, Girard he was doing fluxions. So that's really, you know, the su supersonic math of, of the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so he was, you know, this was, these were people who went not just in one way, but in a Da Vinci, all kinds of ways. So here in 1758, this uh, multi-capable polymath uh, from rural Scotland by way of Marshall College and London, St. George's Hospital, London, ends up in Williamsburg. He does. Surrounded by drunks. I mean, which is not which some drunks actually might want their good name back compared to the behavior of some of his fellow colleagues at William & Mary. Well, his colleagues at William & Mary, the two were hired, of course, I told you then, that in uh, 54, the whole faculty got sacked um, for a number of different reasons. There was, um, but it was mainly a, uh, contests between the Board of Visitors who were local and the professors that were everybody but small had been from Oxford or Cambridge or almost everybody. There was a couple before. Um, but none of them, the son of a Protestant minister from a Scottish university. So, um, and that seems remarkably shocking, but it was really the very thing the Board of Visitors was looking for and asked the Bishop of London for before uh, Small got hired. Um, so they were looking for a somebody to be a wedge, somebody to be uh, in the middle of uh, the problems they were having with the faculty, somebody who would take their side and not vote as a monolithic block. Um, so Small was a layman. Um, he was a Protestant. Well, he was anything that was convenient, you know. Um, and uh, he wouldn't be strictly tied to his colleagues. But they were looking for three of them like that, not one of them like that. But they couldn't get a layman. He was the only layman they could get. Uh, so the first two were, the first guy was named Garonwe Owen. A significant Welsh poet, which I've never said on this podcast before. 
Yes, in a significant drunk as well. Yes, also. I'm not, I'm not saying the two go together, but they, they, did, <laughs> they did in this case. <laughs> and, and he came over, and when he came over, his wife died of a pox on the journey over. Uh, when he got here, he married the widowed sister of uh, President Dawson, and, for, and he had two sons with him. And uh, for about a year, he seemed to calm down. You know, there was nothing exceptional about him at all. And uh, a fellow named, um, what is his name? Well, another guy who's also... Jacob Rowe. Yeah, yeah. Got hired, and he was right out of Cambridge. And very much a firebrand, you know. So some of the things that... The other professors got fired for, particularly the Two-Penny Act, Mm -hmm. which was where there had been a shortage of tobacco, and and it would be a windfall because the price of tobacco would go sky high. The civil servants were paid in tobacco, so the uh, General Assembly decided to pay them in script instead, and the faculty and the clergy were the only ones to protest against it. So um, it was really a hot issue. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Rose started saying that, you know, any member of the uh, Burgesses that voted for it, he wouldn't provide um, last rights to, and they ought to be hung and all that. So. He, he was at it right away. But they also seem, seem to spend a lot of time drinking with their students and, mm-hmm. and getting into fights with the towns, town and gown, basically instigating town and gown fights. I mean, it's a very exciting faculty-student interaction going on in Williamsburg in 1759 or thereabouts. It, 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 it was. They um, first uh, were taking them around town to the inns, and I don't know if it was body houses, but... May well have been, but in any case, they were drunk in the street and costume and all that. And there was a lot of noise in the Gazette about that. So they would sneak down to Yorktown and do the same thing, but that didn't that didn't pan out very well. So uh, Roanoke were brought before the Board of Visitor, and uh, Roe, the chief instigator, said, you know, promise good behavior in city and not step so far beyond the line of virtue that he could not drag his foot back again. <laughs> and within two months, uh, there was a, uh, at Bruton Parish Church, the students sat in the upper galleries and town people down below, and they were making a bunch of kids, were making a bunch of noise upstairs, and the people down Dan and the bottom were looking up, and uh, so they took great offense at that and started spitting down on the people. And so after church, there was a, you know, a little tussle, and then the students went and complained to Roe, and Roe said, all right, let's, uh, let's call them out. You know? and so there was a, a big battle at which Roe or Owen fired a gun, and of course they were drunk, and uh, the townies ran off, and they caught a couple of them, and you know whipped them. Yeah. And it was so notorious it turned up newspapers in London. 
And so about a month later, and this is when Roe had reported he had no students at all. And uh, they called Roe before the Board of Visitors and said, you know, enough of you, buddy, out of here. And if you don't get out of here right away, you're going to get worse treatment than the former professors. And this is how William Small quickly became the only professor. Yes. So when we say that he was Thomas Jefferson's professor, we're not exaggerating. This is no, like he no, is. No. I mean, because he is literally Thomas Jefferson's only professor for a certain stretch of time. He he is uh, because Jefferson got there in uh, into April. Uh, Roe didn't have any students over the summer. Got in a big fight, and by the time fall term was supposed to start in uh, end of August, you know, he was gone. So, uh, and the students were able to choose whatever professor they wanted to go to. Well, in this case, they don't have much of a choice. No, but even when even when uh, Richard Graham came back, he was one of the formerly dismissed professors, came back um, to teach moral philosophy. One of your favorite students, I mean, one of your favorite people, John Page um, and Watt Jones, went to Small for a uh, subject, not, not to uh, Richard Graham. So let's talk a little bit about the party, party quare um, very briefly, and then we'll, uh, and we'll move on to Small's next big move. Um, you already touched on it. It's Francis Fokir, the governor. Uh, it's the party of four. Peyton Randolph, number two, who is the speaker. No, he's not speaker yet, uh, but he's he's a very important attorney. In attorney the, general. Uh, but uh, he showed up only now and then. Okay. Uh, but the With was the second one. George With, who is, you know, one of those Virginians know about him. Uh, but not what people outside. But he's, in some ways, he's, to my mind, one of the most extraordinary men in 18th century Virginia, given that he is obviously a man of great learning, and all of it came from self-study. Um, I, I mean, where else did he, he? He learned all these things. He learned some things from his mother, uh-huh. but he, he taught himself all sorts of languages uh, and, and did it well. But yeah, his mother was the daughter of a fervent Quaker, mm-hmm. and so had an inner light that she exposed to uh, George at a very early age, and um, he became quite uh, adept. And the more I looked at the St. George Tucker thing in the Bushrod Washington and John Marshall, all these, they, all three of them, mm-hmm. and Jefferson. Were with law students, and um, an extraordinary amount of and Winfield Scott, I believe, was a law student of uh, and was Henry Clay. No, but no, no, he was supposed to be, but he didn't. But Winfield Scott, honest to God, was uh, I think had one year of tuition with mm. with with uh, George. I, know. I know. I mean, it's like the, his tentacles go everywhere as a teacher. Well, until a couple of weeks ago, I didn't know anything about Bush Rod Washington oh, being a student. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he was a student of his and then went to uh, James Wilson. Yeah, James Wilson. So, uh, very extraordinary uh, 
importance in American law. Yeah, we got we got to pull back from that. Okay, we're going to be gone for twenty minutes. So right. this group of, of of the governor George With Small, who else? Jefferson. Jefferson. And so, uh, like I said, uh, originally when Falk here came over, and he came over just about the same time as Small did, he formed and had been a habit. Well, he thought it would be a real good idea since there had been so much fighting between the establishment and the locals to have a, you know, a get-together and an intellectual club that were all the rage in uh, Britain. And so he invited the principal citizens and the professors and so on so uh, to his uh, meetings. But he found it soon turned in to an opportunity to either suck up or complain, you know, so he did away with them. And then he decided to have a much smaller group of uh, with and small. And then small had Jefferson come over, ostensibly to play the fiddle, but pretty soon they were very much engaged in all kinds of conversations and found that Jefferson's fresh perspective on things added a lot to the brainstorming they were doing. And just, this is the, these are the meetings, these are the nights that Jefferson sees as the cornerstone of his, not just intellectual development, but sort of personal development. Yes, his moral development. Moral development, yeah. Yeah. And um, out of that outgrowth came uh, the Virginia Society for the Advancement of Arts and Manufacturing, um, which Falk here proposed and got a London Society to fund. And it was pretty much grew out of Small's scientific demonstrations in the classroom. Everybody had heard about it and wanted to see it and wanted him to run this thing, and he did. And it was a, a pretty, you know, these lectures uh, back then were not only informational, they were entertainment. Mm -hmm. You know, people really came to him and some of the some of the projects they had were the same projects that Jefferson would carry on when he became president of the American Philosophical Society. So at some point, well actually in 1763, Benjamin Franklin comes to town. Yes. And this is another major inflection point in Small's life. He's yep. grown restive. You can imagine that the situation when we marry the Board of Visitors, other, let alone other faculty, is always problematic. Um, and he's starting to look towards home, or look towards London. And then Benjamin Franklin comes to town. So you, you pin that down very nicely, that that's when Franklin must have met Small in Williamsburg. You kind of prove that to my satisfaction. There are all kinds of, Franklin's a very, as you know, extensive letter writer, and he can follow his letters. And he came to town to, as the executor of William Hunter's will, of which only Franklin, outside the family, only Franklin and Small got any monetary. William Hunter being the former printer? And well, yes, the, uh, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, the printer of the Virginia Gazette in the bookstore there. In which Franklin had been a uh, investor. Uh, it's one of the, uh, Franklin, he was also, he and Franklin were the co-postmaster generals of the Americas. For the British government, so and, you know, and Franklin was most of the time in Britain, and so Hunter was doing most of the work 
Uh, but anyway, they were such good friends that Hunter left his son's uh, raising education in Franklin's hands. And Small had attended uh, William Hunter as his physician. And so the money grant, which was extraordinary outside of his family, um, was something that showed how much he really appreciated Small. So Franklin meets Small and suggests that Small move back to London. Uh, more than that, he suggests that Small monetize his abilities. You know, he's sort of like saying, why are you hanging around in this bird? You ought to take your uh, knowledge and ex both expand it, meet people that, like, if you want to play better golf, you play golf with better golfers, you know. So you ought to go back to England and expand and see how you like it there and see what your prospects are because uh, you could be making a ton of money and have a better time. And so Small does. I mean, yes. un under the pre somewhat under the pretense of going back to get better lab equipment for the college. Uh, or, or something. Which, which he did. Which he did. But he never came back. He, the lab equipment came, but he did not. But there is, I suspect, he left all his books at William and Mary. Um, and I think he was at least halfway intending to come back. Uh, but Franklin was just, you know, Franklin came to London about a month after he landed, well, about two weeks after he landed, and Small went to a fellow named Alexander Small, who's likely his second or third cousin of his, but he's also Frank, one of Franklin's good friends in London. So as soon as he gets off the boat, he's at Alexander Small's house, and Small is writing to Franklin, um, my namesake, the Virginia professor, is here and wishes to be uh, remembered to you uh, very much. So let's move on to that third bead on the string, which okay. is even in some ways more improbable than what's already happened, mm -hmm. which is his then Franklin sort of midwifing the friendship between Small and Matthew Bolton and Small moving to Birmingham. What's all that about? What, why, how does that become important? Um, so when Franklin comes to London, there's a whole winter season that must have been extraordinarily exhilarating for Small. He was hanging on to Franklin's flapping coattails all around the town, going to different societies, going to... Franklin was just in everything. He was the invisible hand of the Enlightenment and Scottish, particularly the Scottish Enlightenment, and um, was just into everything. It was taking Small with him. Small had already been connected with a number of important doctors in London, but the Franklin uh, even more. Franklin had written a, a pamphlet on the smallpox with a doctor named William Heverden, who became a close associate of Small's. And um, in the springtime, uh, Bolton's daughter had a curvature of the spine and he was looking for a new doctor. So Franklin told Small um, to 
make sure you get the job. I want you to go up to Scotland and get John Gregory a test to your medical abilities, um, which he did. He was teaching at the University of Edinburgh at that time. As a matter of fact, ended up teaching a bunch of small students from Virginia. And a fellow named John Elliott, uh, who was a London physician who had a remarkable footnote story as well. But both of them attested to the abilities of Small as a physician. And Small went to uh, Birmingham, met Bolton, and Bolton was not only impressed by his uh, medical knowledge, but also his scientific abilities and hired him on the spot. Um, Bolton had established the Soho factory near his house in Birmingham uh, just a year before Small got there, or two years before Small got there. And it was an enormous factory, and it was built on an assembly line uh, scheme, one that uh, Adam Smith would advocate for in the Wealth of Nations 10 years later. But it was able to produce things, and Bolton would hire the best artisans, train them in a specific way, pay them a certain way. And he and Small even uh, developed really the first um, health insurance program uh, in existence. Well, I think there was one place that had it six months before, but they went out of business. And um, to keep his workers, and uh, it was really an advanced, very advanced place. What was he making? He was making, it started off toys, then it was buttons, guns, it ended up being plates for the men, um, just all kinds, and a lot of different silver work, uh, pottery, um, just a lot of different things. So Small comes to Birmingham, which is at the time, has been kind of nowhere much in particular. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and is then is growing into this industrial, the industrial center of the world yes. is what it will become in 50 years. Um, and, uh, and he's right at the heart of that with both. Yes. Uh, at the same time, he starts an amazing, an, an immense medical practice yes. uh, and a clinic. Yes. I mean, the guy is tireless. Yes, he um, was uh, brought in that the uh, John Ash was the most celebrated uh, physician in Birmingham at the time. And um, he asked Small to come in both uh, to run the clinic and to, to share the house with him. Um, right across from St. Philip's Cathedral. So it was an extremely fashionable uh, type of practice. It grew uh, so quickly that when he was approached uh, by Haberden to go to the court of St. Catherine, uh, he refused because he said, you know, pretty much I'm having such a good time here and making so much money. Court of Catherine the Great. Yes. That was, Small was asked if he'd be interested in being Catherine the Great's physician or, or, 
to the court. I don't I know court, whether yeah. that specifically right. meant her position or not, uh, but a royal physician in, in Russia. That's a good gig, I suppose, but he thought he had a better one, or he was he, he was happy where he was. Yes, and um, after he got there, Bolton had a problem with uh, the factory in that he had water wheels turned for energy there to run machines. And in the summer, uh, the reservoir would go dry, and he tried all kinds of things, you know, toting water over there by heart, horse, and cart, and that didn't work. And there was a type of uh, steam engine called a Smeetons, and that didn't work very well. And so he had Small come over, and the two of them sit around and have dinner and then talk about science, things at the factory that they could scientifically improve or fix. And the two of them, and probably Small, because Bolton confessed to being no engineer, uh, developed a steam engine, a model. They sent it to Franklin in London. Uh, Franklin thought it was great and displayed it in some public places. It got in the newspapers very quickly, which alarmed Bolton. He asked him to pack it up and send it back, but not before Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles, um, in, near, in nearby Litchfield. Yeah, in nearby Litchfield. Caught sight of that and was just, as you Dora Walty would say, gnawing and aching to get to uh, Birmingham and be part of that crew, you know, and see that machine. Because uh, he was very much interested in the steam engine for running vehicles. Uh, so that was... That was really uh, something that he was very passionate about. And so he wrote to um, Bolton and Small, and as the Birmingham philosophers, and uh, was hinting at uh, wanting to join their group. And Small was very enthusiastic and very inclusive about bringing him in, and he did. And that was the real seed of the famous Birmingham Lunar Society. So what was the Lunar Society? I mean, it might, it might, it's famous, but maybe not to the people listening to this podcast. So, and, and who, and who was in it? Because we already got Matthew Bolton, you know, the principal manufacturer in Britain. We got William Small, polymath. We've got Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles, uh, who came up with a sort of poetic idea of evolution and also wanted steam powered vehicles and was also a, a practicing physician. Um, it's quite a list already. That's just three. Oh, uh, Josiah Wedgwood. Uh, it would come to include Joseph Priestley, William Withering. Joseph Priestley, who's the, among other things, of the English, playing around with experimental chemistry and oxygen. And, and whom the person whom uh, Jefferson wrote all the time for the advice about banding. Uh, and a Unitarian minister and, and so on. Yes. Priestley, yeah. Josiah Wedgwood, uh, Wedgwood Pottery, enough said. Um, and uh, it would come to include, you know, corresponding members like Franklin and the Princess Dashkova, 
a guy named Eric Rasp who uh, stole Jews, jewels from the uh, uh, King of Bavaria. And I mean, just a very diverse collection of people. And it was actually um, certain people have put this, these are the people who were members, and these were the people who were members. But in looking through the letters and uh, reading uh, contemporary uh, accounts or sort of contemporary accounts, um, it came to, first of all, it started off pretty much as Bolton saying both to Small and to Darwin, um, who knows about this particular problem I'm having over at Soho, and let's invite them to come over and talk. And pretty soon that group grew and grew and grew, and it was pretty much, you don't need to come here and present credentials, just uh, be invited and have something to say. Mm -hmm. And so pretty soon that group was uh, extremely expansive and probably the most important um, scientific society outside of London. And, and Jenny Uglo wrote a very good book uh, that gives a wonderful overview of who they were and what they did. And they were really remarkable. But you see Small as he was repeating what he had done or had learnt in other places like in Marshall College with the, 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 with the Wise Society, the Aberdeen Philosophical Society, and with the, the Parti Quare, and so on and so, and so forth. Uh, yes, the, the Society for the Advancement of Arts and Manufacturers, and, um, and I think what, and Small was the, you want to talk about friendships? Yeah, but, but I mean, the, but right. the, the, the idea here is, though, is that people get together to discuss a scientific and engineering, a, a social problem for an afternoon, and then they have a slap-up dinner, plenty of wine, and stagger home. Yes. It's, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty sweet deal. I mean, it's a pretty nice society. I mean, but it's, it's serious, but it's convivial at the same time. Yes, and they would do experiments, tempora uh, contemporaneous to their talk, and it could go from talking about different types of alkalis and clay to the recent discoveries at Pompeii or um, uh, the steam engine, or it, it would just very much as some uh, discussion could evolve from one thing to another. And I think the very important thing about that is very like the very important thing of the society at that time. There were connections that you did not and could not expect, and a spark of genius in one area might stimulate one in another. And it seemed to happen there with uh, great regularity. We should, before we move on, conclude talk about friendship. We should probably talk about the steam engine a little bit more, and also Smalls untimely death. Um, the steam engine, we've already, you've already alluded a couple times that Small was good at making things. So in, oh, yeah. in, in addition to all these other, this polymathic capabilities, he could make machinery. He was a tinkerer. Uh, very interesting, Jefferson, that's a, a, a less known facet of Jefferson's personality too, that he liked to fiddle around with things. And yes, and, and, uh, yeah. work, work, and, and, and work with things. Uh, but so this is part of 
Small's gift as also an experimental philosopher and making scientific demonstrations. So when this impecunious young fellow Scotsman comes to Birmingham to see Matthew Bolton's works, uh, he's able to talk to James Watt as someone who also thinks with his fingertips. Yes, uh, Small has, a, the only patent he had was for a clock. Hmm. Yeah, so it was very intricate mechanics there, and there's a guy named Whitehurst, who's a member of that society, who did a lot of clock, clock uh, tinkering as well. Um, and one of the remarkable things that I've found that to add it as the social glue in these societies, when Small left Williamsburg, um, the Partey Poiret and the Society for the Advancements of Arts and Manufactures dissolved, and John Page later tried to revive it. With SPUC, the Society for the Promotion of Useful Knowledge, I believe, wasn't it? Was it? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. and wasn't very successful at it. And in the same light, when Small died, um, Bolton immediately put had somebody start putting in rules and uh, attendance requirements and things of that in a name. There was no Birmingham Lunar Society as a name until after Small died. So they had to codify everything yeah. because Bolton was afraid it would fall apart, and indeed it did. Uh, so is pretty demonstrative that Small was the social glue, the cohesion that held these people together in a type of society that they did it with what they called a disinterested passion. So, but What did he do for Watt's steam engine with his tinkering capabilities? Do we, do we have a sense of that? So, to an extent, um, uh, Watt, when Watt came by and they had their conversation after that, uh, Small was just nagging at uh, Bolton, you know, hire this guy, get his uh, part of his uh, patent, and um, let's bring it to Birmingham where we've got all the engineering knowledge and the factory. And a problem with water power. Yes, to take care of this. And uh, Bolton was kind of, eh, well, let's see, you know, because a fellow uh, named Roebuck had bought uh, like two-thirds of Watt's patent uh, for money he had lent him. And he had a bunch of uh, tin mines that would flood on a regular basis. And so he wanted an engine to, to pump it out. Um, so when there's a guy named Wilson, who was the iron master down there in Birmingham, that helped a lot. Uh, so between Wilkinson, Bolton, Franklin, and Watt, when a problem would arise or there was an idea to increase um, the efficiency, somebody would harp in and somebody else would harp in and... Uh, you know, it was looked at, and Watt was a very fragile sort of person. You know, he'd get depressed really easy, and um, so Small was a cheerleader, um, and 
as far as technically advising him, you could see through their letters that he was there was very detailed uh, instructions, and particularly to want not to say too much in the mail. He said because if you do, uh, any blockhead could uh, read your message and reproduce what you're going to do to a great extent. So, so eventually that patent was immensely valuable. I mean, it's the, yes. And there's an indication that uh, Small would have, if he had lived, would have had a third of it. It was, and I only found this about five months ago, <laughs> and um, that there are records where Bolton had written that he was going to, as soon as it went through, not the patent, but the sale of the uh, sale of the patent to Bolton, that he was going to get give one half of his to Small, and Small had to pay him something like two thousand pounds, which was a lot of money. But for what he was getting, because um, that patent made Bolton even rich. I mean, immensely wealthy. Oh yeah, and one made him. It uh, was um, like Elon Musk and, and times two. Yeah. yeah, they they became very, and everybody started finding different applications for it. And, what uh, had been a mind pump since time immemorial, back to Newcomen, if not beyond yes. that. All of a sudden, people were like, oh, yeah, you do a lot more besides pumping water out of mines. Yes, and, mm -hmm. and so uh, had Small lived, he would have been uh, in on that, and to have died at 41 seems... Almost unbelievable, but he evidently picked up a bug or something uh, when he went and visited a client and uh, was sick all the way back in the carriage and um, uh, died like two weeks later. So here is the man who was a central sort of social glue in two different... Really, three. Three. Scottish Enlightenment, bringing that concept, that philosophy, and imbuing it into those students at William and Mary, and of course they would spread it um, to a lot of places. And also to like to colleagues, like um, to George With, who would then Absolutely. spread it on to another yep, group yep, of people yep. that Small would never know. Yes, and then uh, the profound influence he had on, on Jefferson. And then going back to England, and well, and Franklin ought to be in there as well, because Franklin is just uh, amazing. Uh, and back to England, and then Bolton, who was really the fuel for the Birmingham Lunar Society, and Watt, who, of course, was the genius of the uh, improved steam engine. So, uh, very much in very real ways had a profound influence on the American Revolution. And He's social glue. I mean, the, the metaphors are endless. He's like an intellectual midwife in some ways to people. I mean, he, he gets things birthed out of people's minds. You know, He's, he has all these roles. Yes, one of the letters was from uh, Bolton to Watt was saying, all right, all right, I'm ready to be the 
midwife to introduce your brat into the world. <laughs> so very much that type of thought. And how quickly the societies fell apart, both in America and the Birmingham Lunar Society, although that went on for a long while, almost immediately. Small's replacement was William Weathering, uh, who developed Digitalis. Hmm. And Erasmus Darwin's son, um, I think Erasmus probably wrote the paper for him in Edinburgh, had a claim on that as well. And they were fighting about it tooth and nail um, for, quite a, for quite a while. And that kind of infighting or worry about who got credit for something didn't appear when Small was there at all. Interesting. So just one final, it, it highlights reading the book, it highlights the, um, the importance of, of friendship in the Enlightenments. Yes. Um, and we see this, I mean, Adam Smith and David Hume. We see this Franklin and everybody. We see William Small and everybody. Um, it's the, uh, that you cannot conceive of these intellectual movements, these intellectual cultures, without thinking about interpersonal of, of friendship. No, and it was not just confined to, and one of the things that I found quite outstanding was that after the revolution that such a republic of letters was able to flourish and there was such a, not only communication, but a supportive network between Americans and Brits and French and Germans and Italians and in that particularly scientific world, but also because that's what I'm most concerned about, you know, my philosophical um, background isn't quite as expansive as what I've looked at in science, but in scientific matters, they were all surprisingly, that would be like uh, American scientists in two years cooperating in engaging with the Russian scientists, you know. Um, and at the same time, remember that those Brits, after the war, had tons of troops sitting up there in Quebec just waiting to pounce when the Americans stumbled over their own feet. So um, it's, to me, it's quite remarkable that the cooperation that went on at that time among so many different factions took place. So you uh, did amazing archival work over a long period of time for this. I'll, I won't embarrass you by asking how long, but I'm, I'm curious, you made so many discoveries. Um, what is the one of which you might be proudest? Uh, other There's actually Two, one okay. of which was when I was in Birmingham Library, I was, well, there's several, but man. Let's go with two, it's good. Two is good. Um, I was looking through uh, what the Watt Collection, or the Bolton Watt Collection, and they were just revising it. And when you ask for certain papers, 
very wisely, I thought. They would bring the papers out, they'd be in an envelope, they'd put it on a digital scale, and when you brought it back, they'd do the same thing. Because so many stuff, so much stuff was getting stolen, you know. Yeah. And so I was looking through some white papers, and at, in it was the May seventh, seventeen seventy five, letter from Jefferson to Small. And there was a copy of it in the Library of Congress, but that was the original. They didn't know it was there. It was not cataloged. And when I asked the archivist, how did this happen? She said, well, I think those papers used to be over at the Birmingham Assay Office. And when they came over, whoever got them just thought it would most logically go in the white file. So we could do, actually, I have written an essay about how reclassifying papers can lead to their being lost. Um, But that happens all the time. All the time. All the time. Um, And the other one was uh, Letter to Unknown, which I thought pretty remarkable, and I had really not before paid much attention to it. Where is it? This is in the Jefferson Papers. This Gilda Lehrman bought at auction in 1994. Uh-huh. And it was, and um, Doug Wilson, who had done, who has done expansive work in Jefferson, um, had written me some time ago during the end of the, at the end of the Civil War when the Union troops were coming to Williamsburg. Uh, everybody had just got up and left town. Yeah. And it was one house, the Saunders house. And I remember you telling me about this years ago. It, it breaks my heart every time I think about it. Go on. I'll have uh, to suffer through this again. <laughs> Robert Saunders was the short-time president of William and & Mary, and his wife was the youngest daughter of John Page, uh, Lucy Burwell Page, I think. And when John Page died in 1808, he had a bunch of Jefferson letters that Jefferson had written to him. As well as with his own, as well as with the voluminous Page papers. Yes. Because they were prolific writers, letter writers. Yes. And readers. Uh, He married a a young lady named uh, Margaret Lothar. And I remember old Colonel Ray Page telling me the wonderful story. You know, old man Page was really old at that time, and Margaret Lothar was fairly young, and they had been some party, and uh, he had given her a ride home, and she left a glove. And he sent a letter over to her the next day and said, you left your glove. This must be love. Will you marry me? (laughs) And she wrote back, your name is Paige, it rhymes with age, you're too old for me. (laughs) But she nonetheless married him, and um, when he died, she moved down to Rosewell and found it too isolated and lonely and moved uh, to the home of St. George Tucker and took her papers with her. And... um, when Lucy Burwell uh, married John Saunders after her mother died, she took all those papers over to their house. Uh, when the Union troops came into Williamsburg in 
got in that house, they were wrecking everything. And there's one memoir that just describes being in the street and picking up a piece of paper and finding it's a letter from Jefferson to Page, I think. Is well, that, there was a commander, the commander of... Who um, wrote that? But anyway, you've, the, anyhow, these letters have been sometimes leaking out of people's attics. Yes. Into the public, uh, into, into the public auction. And this is one of them. Was in 1994 they killed her. I mean, there are more out there. We know that they're somewhere. Um, no, it's, uh, yes, and I think this the letter to Jefferson was described. The unknown was described to be John Page, right. but when I looked at it, that didn't make any sense at all because they were in constant communication. They ran to each other all the time. He was asking things about natural philosophy and. And, and, and Jefferson's silly when he writes to John Page, and that's not a silly letter. He puts silliness no. amongst his other Yes, letters. yes. Yeah. And so um, I'm quite certain that that letter is a letter to Small in which they weren't to put, because they would discuss things, and Jefferson was admitting that were unconventional and should any praying eyes see them, uh, you know, we'd be in a world of of trouble. Um, so let's not put our names at the beginning or the end, uh, the outside cover, let's burn them as soon as we get them. So the only two that remain Jefferson to Small are the ones two weeks before he announced, Small announces that he's leaving for England, and the one that arrives about a month after he dies. And those are the only two that are um, known from Jefferson to Small, although there's indications in letters from Small to Watt that uh, he had been in touch with Jefferson. My guest today has been Martin Claggett. He's author of Spark of Revolution, the biography of William Small, the amazing personality who united the American Revolution and the Industrial Revolution into one very short life. Martin, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.